0: I wonder what your preconceived notions of the book of Job are. Many of us are at least somewhat familiar with the book, perhaps not as familiar as we should be or would like to be. One of the things that I am reminded of every time I think of the book of Job is reading through the Bible in a year. Perhaps you've done that uh, that exercise. You've gone through, started at Genesis, and read through the Bible in a year or tried to. The reason why that is so vividly burned in my mind is on more than one occasion, Job has been the brick wall that has stopped me from reading through the Bible in a year. Especially as you get somewhere in the middle of Job where there is a lot of poetic imagery, a lot of repetition, it seems very hard to get through or to get any meaning out of. So often we are resigned to looking at Job as what I might call proof text land. Do you want to know something about the angels? There's probably a good verse in Job, and you can pull it out. There are wonderful, encouraging proof texts, like where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so perhaps that is your acquaintance with the book of Job. What I would like us to do over the next series of weeks is to look a little bit deeper into the themes of Job. We won't be going verse by verse, word by word through the book. So we will not, as the great Puritan Joseph Carlyle did, we will not spend the next 40 years preaching through Job. There are times in which that is held up as the model of expositional preaching, while at the same time it is forgotten to say that he started with a congregation of 200 and ended with 20. But no, we will spend a good deal of time and we will pick certain sections of Job as we go through trying to find the important themes and the great teachings that God has for us in this book. This is, in a sense, one of the most comforting books of the Scripture as it describes what happens as a Christian goes through difficulties and challenges. So as we think about beginning this, morning, this evening... I would like us to just briefly think about two things. The first is the book itself, the book of Job. And then the second is the person Job. So first the book of Job and then the person of Job. As we think about the book, first I would like you to to get an understanding of the general context in which this book occurs. This is one of the books of the Bible that we do not know the author of. And surprisingly, there are a great many of them that we do not know the actual author. It's, it's not every book that, like Philippians, that says it comes from the hand of Paul. There are many that we think we know the author. For example, we're on a higher level of assurance that Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We have a little bit less level of assurance that perhaps Ezra had a hand in writing Kings and Chronicles. But there are many books in which we are are not given the name of the author. The early history of the church has the author given as Moses. There's actually a commentary in the Talmud that says that Moses is the author. And this makes some sense because if we think about it, the subject matter of Job is amongst the oldest in the Bible. And Moses has written the first five books of the Bible. And so it would make sense that writing in that era, the patriarch era, that Moses would be the author. There's another sense in which we might say that Job is wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. And so I think a good case can be made that it is written by someone in that era, about 1000 BC, someone who was highly trained and sought to put down forever by the power of the Holy Spirit the story of Job that had been handed down from generation to generation, orally. And so there is a real sense in which you can think about the book of Job kind of like the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. We don't know who Job's father is. We don't know exactly where Job comes from. But one thing that we do know is that Job was given to us by the Lord and that Job has something to teach us it is as we have said wisdom literature it is not all prose text like philippians or like first or second kings that we were in nor is it all poetry like psalms it is a mix of both and its main subject matter is to deal with piety now when i use this word piety i want you to understand its biblical import this isn't about sitting off somewhere in an ivory tower and trying to make oneself more holy When we think about piety, it is the art, or rather the work, of living before God. Piety is what it means to live before God. And so just as Proverbs, for example, discusses how the pious can prosper by living properly before the Lord, and just as Ecclesiastes shows the vanity of living without piety, without a mindset of God, Job deals with Another aspect of piety, and that is living before God in the midst of adversity. It may be that simple reason why this book has been beloved by the church for generations. Because we all, through one time or another, deal with some adversity or another. And Job gives us instructions and encouragement on how to live in adversity. This book is set in what we might call a patriarchal or a pre-patriarchal setting. The name of God that is used in this book is an old form of the name of God. It is not the more developed form of God that comes out later in the scriptures. Job himself is described as one who is a patriarch. He He has wealth in terms of flocks. He is the priest of his own household. There is no priestly structure set up yet. Even his lifespan, we see at the end of Job, is patriarch-like. He lives 140 years, which is very similar to Jacob, for example, who has lived 130 years. The other thing that is interesting about this book is that there is no reference to Mount Sinai or the covenant at Sinai. But there is, however, a reference to the fall and to Adam. We'll look at that in a minute. So this is the general context of the book of Job. The second thing that we might think about in looking at the book itself are the themes or the purpose of this book. This book is a study in steadfastness, patience, and perseverance. There is a truism that says that we interpret the Bible by interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New. And so as we begin on this journey of Job, I would invite you to turn to the book of James, where we get an insight into exactly what Job is about, why Job is important. James is writing to a church that is under persecution and under fire, experiencing difficulties, challenges from within the church and without. And he writes here in chapter 5, beginning at verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, here we see from James that Job is one who spoke in the name of the Lord, and that his steadfastness was known in the church. How was it known? Well, it was through the reading and preaching of the Word of God, of the book of Job, as the New Testament church had it. They would understand the story of Job and they would know the purpose of the story of Job. And you see, that purpose is not to describe interesting animals and monsters or to give us great insight into the physical location of Satan. The purpose of the book of Job is to see that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, at first glance, this is not the first thing that we see in Job, is it? After all, Job is a book about how life is miserable and how life can be miserable not just for those who disobey God, but for those who obey God. I mean, Job's experience is perhaps the worst that has ever been described in literature. Everything that could possibly happen to someone in a bad and wicked way happens to Job. But yet James tells us that what we are to see in this book is the merciful compassion of God. And so keep that in mind as we think about this book, that that is what God wants you to see, that He is merciful, that He is compassionate, that He is sovereign. This is one of the main themes of the book of Job. One of the things that I think we can see too in Job that will help us as we go out and about throughout the world as we deal with not only Uh, churches that are shallow and false, but as we go throughout the world that denies Christ, is that Job has within it depictions, descriptions of mythology. There are mythological gods who are referred to. There are mythological monsters like Leviathan. And we may wonder why are these included in a book like this? What we can say is that these things, things such as false gods, are not real but they are described in the book as if they were real by persons who believe in them. And that should give us pause. Not that we should believe myths, not that we should go on flights of fancy, but that we need to understand as Christians that myths cannot be treated as mere unreality. What do I mean by that? I mean that everywhere around us there are people who actually believe myths. Things like the power of tarot cards, fortune-telling, knocking on wood, evolution. And they order their lives by it. It has real power in their lives. And so we cannot just treat them as things that oh, these don't matter, they don't exist. We must treat them as realities in their lives and address them. Because myths are not only real for them, they are bound up with sin and Satan. They are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, eating of food offered to idols. And he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or in earth, is indeed there are many gods and many lords throughout the earth, Paul says we must treat it with others to break the bondage of what they see as reality. This is something that I think the book of Job will help us to do in our evangelism and in our apologetics. So here we have the main themes of the book of Job, that God is compassionate and merciful and that there is a need to break down the barriers of falsehood of others. Well, let's talk then for a minute briefly about the person Job, the man Job. Let's look first at his character. We see here from the text that Job was a great man. He was, in fact, the greatest of men of the East. He was rich beyond anything we can imagine. And Now, we need not think of these numbers as if somehow Job has sheep running around and he had the ancient version of dog tags that he has tagged each one of their ears. And this is sheep number 432. And this is sheep number 6,999. And next to him is sheep number 7,000. These are round numbers to describe incredible wealth. Unbelievable blessing that he has received from God. And yet I want you to also see that his greatness did not exclude his walk with the Lord or his piety. He is described as someone who owns incredible wealth, but he is also described as someone who is blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. He is Job from the land of Uz. And in this way, he's not dissimilar to someone who is described in a letter of Paul. Because Paul will describe someone as where they are from and where they are involved in the ministry, what they are doing, where their heart is with God. He'll speak about Timothy in this fashion or or Barnabas or others. So Job is laid out for us as a great man who thinks great things of God. He's from a land that is likely east of the promised land, And he is very likely not from the line of the covenant that ran from Seth through to Abraham. He's likely from one of these offshoots because we know that many ancient lands were named for people. And so, for example, Canaan is named after Noah's grandson, Canaan. Here, we know that Abraham's uh, brother, Nahor, had a son named Uz, just like the land of us, And we think that likely that was Edom of Old Testament and New Testament times. And so Job is a man who is great not only in his wealth and in his piety, but he is great in a place that is outside of the mainstream of God's people. He is a man who honors and serves God around others who do not and who believe in false gods. That's important to remember as we think about Job's integrity. He's described in two fashions. First, with an outward manifestation of piety, namely that he is blameless and that he is upright. And then with his inward motivation of piety, namely that he feared God and turned from evil. When we see that he's blameless, we remember what we looked at in Paul's description of the Philippians wanting them to be blameless, that is to be consistent in their obedience with God's will, and that they would be upright, that Job is one who lives in light of what God has commanded. In other words, you would look at Job and there would be no glaring sin that you could point out in his life. And yet at the same time, that was an outward manifestation of what was going on in his heart because he feared God and turned from evil. Job himself describes this in Job 28, 28 as the sum of wisdom. In other words, Job is aware of his own accountability before God. And because of that, he forsook evil. That's his character. And that manifests itself in his life, in his public life, where he was a respected judge. We see that in Job 29. We see that he was very careful to be fair with the poor and with his servants. In Job 31, he was a man who lived his life of piety out amongst others. He also lived this life amongst his family. Look at the concern that he has for his children. This is very interesting. You'll notice the Bible describes this in sort of Bible language, so let me put it in our language. On their birthday, each of his sons would have a birthday party. They would have a feast, and it would go several days. And then Job does this interesting thing. He offers a sacrifice. He says, For it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we look at this word, cursed, maybe some of you have a little footnote in your Bible that says that the actual word here for cursed is the Hebrew word for to bless. And some commentators say, and I think often this can be the case, the writers of the Bible just couldn't bear to put the words curse and God next to each other. So they use a euphemism. They say bless, even though everybody knows that it means curse here. But there's something else that I think is involved here. It's not just that they might curse God, but this word here for bless can also take on a connotation of saying what we might use when we say farewell. Farewell is a goodbye, but it's also you're saying, may it go well with you. And so there's a sense in which we might say they're not just cursing God, but they're saying goodbye to God. They're renouncing God. They're putting God in the background. And you see, what Job is getting at here is, I am concerned that my children might be so caught up in the entertainment and the things of the world and the things of their own lives that they might forget about God. And so I pray for them that they wouldn't. Do you see what Job is doing here? Do you see what a concern he has for his family? The question might come to you then. How do you act in this fashion with your children? How do you direct them? Are you careful to pray for them, to point them along the way, to make sure that they don't get caught up in all of the good things that are around them, music, reading, Sports, working, all worthy endeavors. But are you working to make sure that your children are not caught up in that, but that rather they are always following the Lord? Job is one who is concerned for his children. He's also concerned for his wife. Many of us know Mrs. Job only by her famous line in chapter 2, verse 9, Why don't you just curse God and die? Mrs. Job isn't exactly the most popular of Bible characters. And Job responds by saying, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? And some of us look at this and say, well, we're kind of, either we're glad or we're a little bit ashamed that Job is giving Mrs. Job a little bit of a smackdown for being foolish. He's saying, kind of, sit down and be quiet. When really that's not the case, if you look closely, he doesn't say that you are foolish. He says you're speaking as someone who is foolish. You're speaking as someone that you're not. He's saying, get a hold of yourself, get your senses, please. And then he does something that all husbands should do he comes alongside her and he says, We've received good from God. Shouldn't we receive evil as well? You see, he doesn't chastise her. He doesn't mock her. He doesn't ignore her. He comes alongside and stretches out her hand to build her up to be the woman that she should be. This is the kind of person that Job is. This is why Job is recognized by Satan. Satan desires to manipulate, to destroy Job. We're going to see more of that next week, but let me leave you with this one brief instance. If we look here at verse 8, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And we think about this in this context. God standing, and we don't want to picture God being huffy, but maybe we scale that back a bit and we say, well, you know Satan, look look at my servant Job. He's a pretty good servant. So therefore... That tells you something about me. That's not really what the text says. Considered here is actually kind of a weak translation. Really, the word here that's used is not considered like, has it ever come into your mind? But rather, it's two Hebrew words Have you set your mind or your heart, same word, on him? We might put it this way to use the same kind of considered language. In our modern parlance, we might say that God is saying, have you been eyeing my servant Job? Have you been looking to get him? Have you been after him? You see, God knows that Satan cannot stand any form of service for the Lord. He can't stand anything that is selfless. And he's going to do everything he can to prove that not only is Job a mocker and a liar, but that God is a liar. Because you see, Satan's attack on Job here is not primarily on Job. It's primarily on God. He wants to show that God is selfish, that God is just like him, that God is no better than he is, because he is, after all, the usurper and the liar. So next week we will come and we will look at this famous incident in which Job is initially attacked and see how he deals with it. And may the Lord instruct us in it that we might see in Job the kind of piety, the kind of perseverance that the Lord would grant to us in our own difficulties and journey through life.